All right, we are coming towards the end of our series on uh, called The Blessing. We're looking at the story of Abraham as the first person that God commissioned to be a blessing to his neighbors, to love his neighbors. And it's been interesting as I've been trying to figure out the, how to make the transition into uh, Easter and Palm Sunday, because normally, most years, I've been leading us through a gospel, that, and I make sure that it links up with Easter so it fits naturally. This year, it hasn't been that way. And, and as I was looking at a couple of the different things that I wanted to talk about on Palm Sunday, which is, I planned this to be the last sermon of the series, what I found was that the two themes I was wrestling with to choose between for Palm Sunday, actually, I kept wanting to refer back to the last two stories about Abraham. It's, it's almost as if it's all inspired by one God, the whole Bible. Um, so actually, <laughs> we're going to be able to stick with this, our study of Abraham this week and next week because they're going to talk about the very things that I wanted to discuss as we talked about the crucifixion of Jesus and, and then the resurrection. So today we are in Genesis 20. We've just finished the three sermons talking about the, the whole story of the visitors coming to see Abraham and ultimately the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And so this story takes place after the, after the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And if you were here for the second sermon of this series, I promise I am not rereading the story from Genesis 12. This is actually a new story. You'll see what I mean in a second. So let me read us the story and then we will uh, we'll dissect it. Now Abraham moved on from there into the region of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. For a while he stayed in Gerar, and there Abraham said of his wife Sarah, She is my sister. Then Abimelech king of Gerar sent for Sarah and took her. But God came to Abimelech in a dream one night and said to him, You are as good as dead because of the woman you have taken. She is a married woman. Now Abimelech had not gone near her, so he said, Lord, will you destroy an innocent nation? Did he not say to me, She is my sister? And didn't she also say, He is my brother? I have done this with a clear conscience and clean hands. Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know you did this with a clear conscience, and so I have kept you from sinning against me. That is why I did not let you touch her. Now return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and, she, and he will pray for you, and you will live. But if you do not return her, you may be sure that you and all who belong to you will die. Early the next morning, Abimelech summoned all his officials, and when he told them all what had happened, they were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham in and said, What have you done to us? How have I wronged you that you have brought such great guilt upon me and my kingdom? You have done things to me that should never be done. And Abimelech asked Abraham, What was your reason for doing this? Abraham replied, I said to myself, Surely there is no fear of God in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she really is my sister, the daughter of my father, though not of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God had me wander from my father's household, I said to her, this is how you can show your love to me. Everywhere we go, say of me, he is my brother. Then Abimelech brought sheep and cattle and male and female slaves and gave them to Abraham, and he returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, my land is before you. Live wherever you like. To Sarah, he said, I am giving your brother a thousand shekels of silver. This is to cover the offense against you before all who are with you. You are completely vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, his wife, and his female slaves, so they could have children again. For the Lord had kept all the women in Abimelech's household from conceiving because of Abraham's wife, Sarah. It's an interesting story. 
And if it sounds familiar, familiar, that's because Abraham has done this before. And we cover this exact same story pretty much happening in Egypt. It was actually the very first thing that Abraham did after God sent him to Canaan. Is he left Canaan, he went to Egypt, and he lied about his wife. But there's a much more interesting principle that's going on in this story that we don't see in the first story, the first time it happened. Something really fascinating about the way God handles this this situation. And it gives us a window into the proper way to understand the nature of sin and the way sin needs to be dealt with. So let's start by just charting out the, the, the motions of the story, and then we'll dig into the kind of mystery at the heart of it. All right, so Abraham moves away from Sodom and Gomorrah, probably not an unwise decision, considering how crazy the neighborhood has gotten now that it's been destroyed by a meteor. And he goes there, he goes to this other place on the other side of the promised land, and he goes back to his old tricks. He's, he's afraid that they're going to kill him and take his wife, so he tells her to say that she's his sister. And the same thing happens. The king takes, because he thinks that she's not married, he takes her as a wife. So Abraham lied about his wife again, and Abimelech accidentally stole her. The rare set of circumstances allow you to accidentally steal someone's wife, but that's what happened. He accidentally stole Sarah. And the interesting thing is, I probably shouldn't quite say again. The revelation of this story is this isn't again, this is still. He is still lying about his wife because when you read the way he talks about it, he says, um, when God had me wander from my father's household, I said to her, this is how you can show your love to me. Everywhere we go say, he is my brother. They've been doing this the whole time. Everywhere they've gone. It's just, this just happens to be the second time that someone actually marries Sarah because they think she's available. But Abraham never actually like, got over this defense mechanism, this way of protecting himself. This is just something he's been doing one of the things that happened, Abraham and Peter, are, the Apostle Peter, are both great people to study if you feel like the people God chooses are always perfect. Uh, Abraham will really uh, clarify that, you know, dispel that illusion for you because he, he makes tons of mistakes, and this is one that he has been making constantly, and it catches up with him one more time. And so Sarah goes and marries Abimelech, but uh, God appears, God again intervenes because Abraham has made a mess of things. And he comes to him in a dream and says, you are as good as dead because the woman you have taken, she is a married woman. And when he says you're as good as dead, he's referring to the curse that we are, is described at the end of the story, which is that God has made it impossible for anyone in the royal household to conceive. So he, he's dead in the sense that his family is dead. It's going to end with him um, that, so, so God has intervened, and why has he intervened in this way? Well, if you remember, the last time Abraham talked with God, what did God say was going to happen within a calendar year? Sarah was going to get pregnant. In fact, there are clues in the story which tell us that her menopause was reversed during that conversation. That's very possibly why Sarah had to stay in the tent. But the fact is, Sarah can get pregnant this year. And now she's married to someone else. You can see the danger for the promise that God has said will be passed through Abraham and Sarah's children together. Right? And so God sent this curse and basically made it, nobody in that household can get pregnant. 
Why? Because Sarah must not get pregnant by Abimelech. And so God cursed Abimelech and his family for endangering the covenant blessings. Because the blessings have to go through Abraham and Sarah's son. Now, we talked about this last time in Egypt, that again, this curse is not a punishment. It's an intervention. It's a way of preventing the potential consequences of what they've done. This is not God like crushing an ant because they made a mistake. This isn't intended to be an eternal consequence. This is something God has to do to preserve his blessing and the means of his blessing. But Abimelech had not gone near her, so he said, Lord, will you destroy an innocent nation? Did he not say to me, she is my sister, and did she, didn't she also say, he is my brother? I have done this with a clear conscience and clean hands. That's fair, right? He hasn't actually done anything wrong. He, he was tricked into this, essentially. And so how do we expect God to respond? God might say, oh, okay, you're, you know, you're right, you're innocent, so no harm, no foul, just let her go and everything will be fine. Right? It, was, it was all Abraham's fault. I'll go back and I'll sort him out. You know, I'll straighten him out and we'll deal with him. Maybe I'll curse his family a little bit. But um, everything's fine. You just go about your business. Just let Sarah go home. That's, that's what we would expect him to say. That's probably what we would think is the fair thing to say. Maybe we even say, hey, I'll make sure Abraham like, gives you a little something for your trouble. Right? Like He'll pay a fine. He'll, he'll give you some sheep, something. Right? But instead, he says, yes, I know you did this with a clear conscience, so I've kept you from sinning against me. God says, yeah, absolutely, you're right. You're innocent. You didn't break any rules. Now return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you will live. But if you do not return her, you may be sure that you and all who belong to you will die. Notice that extra and very strange thing. He has to not only return her, but he has to make peace with Abraham because God is not going to lift the curse until Abraham prays for Abimelech. You notice that? Very interesting. So God told Abimelech that he would have to make things right with Abraham before he could be forgiven, before the curse could be lifted. That's the puzzle here. That's the really interesting choice that God makes that doesn't fit with the way we think about sin and forgiveness. So Abimelech brought sheep and cattle and male and female slaves and gave them to Abraham, and he returned Sarah's wife to him. Abimelech said, my land is before you. Live wherever you like. So he gives him animals, which is the most valuable thing you can give a rancher, right? Like gold is heavy to carry around. What you really want is a whole bunch of animals to add to your flock. And then he gives him land. That's the other thing you want as a rancher, right? You want animals, you want land. So he, he gives him all this wealth. And then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, his wife, and his female slaves so they could have children again. So once Abraham prayed for Abimelech, God forgave him and lifted the curse. It went exactly the way God said it needed to go. But in our, does, that, does that provoke your sense of justice a little bit, though? As you're reading that story, especially as you're looking at it through Abimelech's eyes, Abimelech got tricked, and Abimelech had to go to Abraham, had to pay him off, and ask him to pray so that Abimelech could be forgiven for something that was Abraham's fault in the first place. What? How does that make any sense? Well, again, it's because we tend to think our, our main metaphor for thinking about sin is not the way that the Bible thinks about sin and forgiveness. 
So what I want to do is I want to send, spend a little bit of time talking about uh, why God sent Abimelech to Abraham. Now, the main metaphor that we use for sin is crime. Sin is when there's a rule and you break it. That's what makes it sin. So whatever the, wherever the lines are that are drawn by the law, that's crossing those lines is what counts as sin. And, and that we always consider motive as part of that. So if you, don't, if you have a good reason why you didn't know the line was there, for instance, someone lied to you about the marital status of their sister, you can't be blamed for crossing that line. In fact, the person who lied is the one who crossed the line. But the Bible does not look at sin primarily as a crime. The, law, the, the Bible looks at sin primarily as disruption, as something that people do that disrupts God's good design, that God, disrupts God's good world. It's like when you imagine, uh, or if you've been in a, a body of water that has a thick layer of silt, and it's cl- crystal clear, and then you step in it, and boom, everything's messed up and dirty, right? And you have to wait for a while for it to settle down if you want to see through the water. That's what sin does. Sin is a disruption. That's why in the Bible, the, the sacrificial system mainly deals with unintentional sins. How to, how to get unintentional sins forgiven, which is not a category that we really think of very much. But sin, even unintentional sin, disrupts the blessings of God. So for instance, in Abimelech's case, he didn't break a rule. Right? God acknowledges that he did not break the rules, but his actions did disrupt the blessings of God because it separated Abraham and Sarah. And it endangered their, their ability to have a child together. Now, God is very clear that Abimelech is not to blame, but he still is, has participated in this disruption that needs to be dealt with. And this is where the concept of atonement comes in. Because we think of atonement the wrong way because we tie it in with this metaphor of uh, crime, sin being crime. If sin is crime, then atonement means paying for that crime. It means doing your time in prison. It means paying off your fine, right? It means fulfilling the punishment that goes with the crime. But that is not actually what the Bible is talking about when it talks about atonement. So let me give you an example. On the Day of Atonement, the very central moment of the ritual is when the high priest goes into the tabernacle, into the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant is, with the the lid on it that's called the mercy seat. That's the place where God and humanity are supposed to meet. And he goes in and he sprinkles blood on it. And it says, He shall then slaughter the goat for the sin offering for the people and take its blood and sprinkle it on the atonement cover and in front of it. In this way, he will make atonement for the most holy place because of the uncleanness and rebellion of the Israelites, whatever their sins have been. Now, here's the tricky thing about this word is it's grammatically weird in English. When we say make atonement for, first of all, if we think of that as a metaphor for pain for sins, that means that he's paying for the sins of the holy place, right? Which doesn't make sense. The holy place is a place. It doesn't sin. So we're saying, like, pay the penalty for the holy place. That does not make sense. But when you look at the word that we translate as make atonement for, it's not a verb-noun preposition. It's a verb. It's kipper. 
In this way, he will kipper the most holy place. And that word kipper, it actually refers to cleaning or covering. And what's happening is the ceremonial washing of the, of the top of the, the uh, Ark of the Covenant because the sin of the people has disrupted God's good creation. And there's this kind of mentality that like, the Ark is kind of like the drain where it collects. And it needs to be cleaned away. That's how you can atone the holy place. Because atone isn't paying for the sins of. Atone is cleaning or restoring. So it actually makes more sense and is clearer grammatically if you read that verse to say, in this way he will restore the most holy place. Because there's been disruption there's been this symbolic disruption. There's real, real disruption created by the sins of Israel, but that is symbolized mentally by the idea that it's contaminated the tabernacle, and they're going to go in once a year and clean it out. In fact, the word atonement, it sounds very big and official and like a $50 word. It's actually like three $5 words stuck together. I don't know if you realize this. I was a little almost let down when I found out the etymology of this word. They were translating the Bible into English, and they came across kipper, and they weren't quite sure how to turn that into a word uh, in English, or what word to use, because there really wasn't a good word for what it means, because there's what the word means. It means clean, wash, cover, right? Then there's what it does in the ceremony, and what it does in the ceremony is it reconciles people. It reconciles humanity and God because it clears the disruption away between them, right? So they said, well, what word can we use? Well, it unifies them. It, it, it's it's unifiement. Unify, it makes people one. It makes people at one with God. It, oh, we'll, we'll call it at one mint. That's literally where the word comes from, at one mint. We just say atonement because that sounds more... More, has more gravity to it, right, than at one month. But ultimately, the word simply refers to reconciling God and people together by clearing away the disruption that sin causes. The root metaphor is not so much paying for sin, because then we get into all the... That has its own set of questions about, you know, which law did they break? Whose fault was it that they broke? And all these other things that we want to get caught up in. We want to get caught up in the blame game. God wants to focus on the disruption question. Because you can settle the blame game, but if you haven't dealt with the disruption, that doesn't do you any good. The consequences are still out there. So this is why sin requires at-one-ment, which is public recognition, public reconciliation that addresses the disruption that it caused. So here's the problem. If they don't, if, Abraham, or if um, Abimelech just lets Sarah leave out the back door and go back to Abraham, no harm, no foul, everything's fine, right? And then she, get, then she suddenly, after you know, 100 years of being married to Abraham, suddenly now she has a kid. What's everybody going to think? What is the assumption that everybody's going to make? Or at least the possibility that's going to be in everybody's minds. Are they going to think that suddenly God miraculously changed their biology so that they could, see, could conceive? Or would they think that actually it was just a result of, of Abimelech being in the picture instead of Abraham? So what actually happens, 
This is why one of the most important things that happens in this conversation is Abimelech says to Abraham, I'm giving your brother a thousand shekels of silver. This is to cover the offense against you before all who are with you. You are completely vindicated. Part of the disruption is that, that Sarah, Sarah's honor has been challenged and, her, and the legitimacy of her children has been brought into question. And so that has to be dealt with as part of the resolution of this problem. Even though it's not Abimelech's fault, Abimelech is the only one who can really verify, right? It has to come from him in order to deal with the disruption caused by this problem. Abraham can't clarify this, right? Like Abraham, Abraham of course Abraham's going to say that the kid is his. That doesn't prove anything to anyone. Abimelech needs to demonstrate that nothing happened between him and Sarah in order to deal with the disruption caused by Abraham's mistake. This is why atonement is important. It's something that happens in public that deals with our sin and creates reconciliation between people. Because one of the problems that we get sucked into is we get sucked into this idea that Christianity is about forgiving and forgetting. We think that Christianity is just about just forgive and, and just everything's forgiven and don't worry about the consequences, right? Clean slate for everybody. That's not quite right. It's missing a very important element, and it's the element of atonement. Because forgiveness without atonement leaves the disruption unresolved. And it doesn't actually address the sin. If we forgive without dealing with the problems that were created, what we're actually doing is enabling sin. And I'm going to read you a quote from a very strong critic of American Christianity. And this may be a little bit uncomfortable, but I, would, I think this is something we have to hear because it is a very fair, accurate take on atonement in our culture. It's from Malcolm X. Malcolm X was an a, uh, African-American Muslim and civil rights leader who was very, uh, very much on the opposite end of the spectrum from Martin Luther King in terms of talking about forgiveness. But he says something very, that we, we really have to face. He says, many black men, the victims, in fact, most black men would like to be able to forgive to forget the crimes. But most American white people seem not to have it in them to make any serious atonement. Indeed, how can white society atone for the robbery of the black people's labor, their lives, their true identities, their culture, their history, and even their human dignity? A desegregated cup of coffee, a theater, public toilets, the whole range of hypocritical integration, these are not atonement. And he's right. He is right to say that it is not atonement to say, you know what, Jim Crow laws were a bad idea, so we'll repeal them and everything's fine now. That's not atonement. It doesn't address the disruption that's been caused by the hundreds of years of oppression and conflict, right? There are consequences of our sins. And so it's important that we end those, that we end sin, that we stop committing sin, but to then say, oh, well, it's over now, whatever the sin is. To just say, it's over now, we're just going to forget about it, that's not atonement. That's just, that's actually enabling. And so I think it's fair for us to hear, if, if I were in his shoes and somebody said, you know what, 
how about we just sit down for a cup of coffee as equals and we'll call it good? I would not be ready for that. I would not agree to that as, okay, now we're fine. Right? There's a lot of work that has to be done. There's a lot of hurt that needs to be addressed. It needs to be taken seriously. Now, obviously, that particular issue is a huge one that we feel overwhelmed by, and we'll talk in a second about the unique resources we have as, as God's people to address atonement on that level. But in those situations where we can atone with others, notice I'm going to use that word differently, not atone for, but atone our relationship, make our relationship at one. In those relationships where we can atone, atoning lays a foundation for future peace and blessing. Because if you don't atone and the disruption is still there, you can't build on it. You can't move forward. But when you do atone, you can move forward. So, for instance, there's a couple of important things that happen in chapter 21 of this story. First of all, chapter 21, verse 1, right after the the end of the story we just read, it says, Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah, because that disruption has been dealt with, Sarah can have a child, and there's no question about whose child it is. And God's promises are able to move ahead. Because that disruption has been dealt with, the blessings can go ahead. And if it hadn't, if it hadn't, then then the blessing would not have been able to happen under those clear circumstances. And after it talks about the birth of Isaac, then we get, at the end of the chapter, we get this weird little domestic kind of story that, that it's kind of puzzling a little bit why it's there. It's this, so after Isaac is born and, and a couple other things happen, it says, at that time Abimelech said to Abraham, God is with you in everything you do. Now swear to me before God that you will not deal falsely with me or my children or my descendants. Notice he's, got, he's, he's a little sore still about this whole thing, right? He's like, promise me you're not going to do that again. Show to me and the country where you now reside as a foreigner the same kindness I have shown you. Abraham said, I swear it. Then Abraham complained to Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized. But Abimelech said, I don't know who has done this. You did not tell me, and I heard about it only today. So Abraham bought sheep, brought sheep and cattle and gave them to Abimelech, and the two made a treaty. Now, why are these two rather unexciting? Like, why, why is the, these two interactions between Abimelech and Abraham here? I'm not sure I could give you all the reasons, but I could tell you one is it shows you that their relationship continued because they're still neighbors. Abraham basically spent the rest of his life living on Abimelech's land. And you can see in these interactions, while there are still things that happen between them, they're able to have a working relationship. And I wonder how these conversations would have gone if the situation with Sarah had been left unresolved. Imagine that they are going into this situation with a complete breakdown in trust, harboring bitterness, frustration, feelings of betrayal. Would they have had the relational resources to be able to navigate something as simple as a dispute over a well? Or would it have escalated? Anybody anybody been in a relationship like that where one thing went wrong and from then on everything was wrong because that there was that seed of bitterness or mistrust or some issue that poisoned it for the rest of your relationship. We've all experienced that, right? It's because that sin hasn't been dealt with. That relationship hasn't been atoned. 
So as we look at this story about Abraham and this weird idea that God would have Abimelech go to Abraham, it trains us to look at sin a different way because we constantly want to play the blame game because we can sometimes win the blame game. Right? If you try hard enough, anybody can win the blame game in their own mind. Right? We are amazingly good at finding a way to get ourselves off the hook. But God isn't interested in the blame game so much as he's interested in the sin and disruption game. The question isn't, is it your fault? Or is it more your fault than theirs? The question is, has it been disrupted? Is there sin? Is something off? Is your relationship not where it should be? And if it's not, it doesn't ultimately really matter whose fault it is. What matters is that we find that reconciliation, that we deal with the disruption. And, and the, the other reason why we go to the blame game is because the blame game allows us to bypass the disruption. Because then we can say something like, well, I said I was sorry, so you just need to get over it. Right? Because I've addressed the blame, but I haven't addressed the disruption, but now I can say, well, that's, you deal with the disruption. I've made things right by accepting the blame. And we allow sin to fester, disruption to fester. This is why atonement is so important. We learn to love our neighbor, we have to remember, as we're taking this into our own neighborhoods, that loving your neighbor means atoning relationships that have been disrupted by sin. It's not enough to say, it's not my fault. I was tired at the time. I was distracted. They were tired at the time. They overreacted. It's not a matter of just sorting out the blame. Another reason we like to play the blame game, because if I can put the blame all on them, then I can just sit back and say, well, when, they, when they're ready to resolve it, we'll resolve it. I don't have a problem. They're the ones that are to blame, and I'll just wait for them to do something. Aren't you glad God didn't do that? If anybody could ever say that the other side was completely to blame, it was God. And thank goodness he did not wait for us to make it right. But as we are, as we are loving our neighbors, it means that we're going to have to deal with conflict and we're going to have to atone those relationships. This is why we don't like to love our neighbors because they're so hard to escape from. If you're trying to love someone that you meet at the grocery store, you can just stop going to that grocery store if you make some kind of mistake or if there's some kind of problem. You, you don't want to have to move every time you get in a fight with your neighbors, so you just avoid a, a relationship that might go wrong with your neighbors. But if we're going to fulfill the mission that God has given us, we need to actually be able and willing to atone relationships, to repair them, to rebuild them, to address the sin and disruption in them. And this is one of the reasons why, this is a core reason why we as Christians have a unique ability to create atonement in our communities. Not to create atonement, but to work on atonement in our communities because we have access to Jesus Christ. In Scripture, it says that God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. Actually, the word there in Greek is the mercy seat, the lid of the ark where humanity and God meet. Through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith, he did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. 
He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. When we talk about the atonement of Jesus, what that means is that if God was going to, the only way that God without Jesus could eliminate the disruption that we have caused in the world would just be to eliminate us, right? Aren't we all glad that God has not canceled out, intervened in every piece of disruption that we have ever created, right? Every moment of disruption, he hasn't come down on us. And one of the things that the Jews were talking about at the time of Jesus is how is God ever going to get us out of this cycle of sin and punishment? Because we mess things up, and then he punishes us, and then he lets us out, and we try to do it right, and then we mess it up, and he punishes us again. And our whole history as Israel is doing this, right? How are we ever going to get out of this? Especially since every time he let us out, every time he freed us, he was letting us out early, right? We've never actually had to pay the full sentence. We get out on on good behavior, even though we weren't behaving well, every time. How are we going to deal with this? And Paul's answer here is to say that in Jesus, dying on the cross, the Son of God dying on the cross for our sins, settles for all time whether God takes sin seriously. In that moment, God has publicly dealt with our sin. He has publicly dealt with the disruption that we cause by showing that he is not simply forgiving and forgetting. We are not forgiven just because God is going easy on us. We are forgiven because Jesus Christ has become the sacrifice of atonement so that God can say, you want to know how I feel about sin? Look what happened to my son. He has paid for it. He has dealt with the disruption. It's all been focused on to Jesus and dealt with through his death. So that as we look at these moments of uh, these these disruptions that are so big that we couldn't possibly deal with it, we may feel burdened by so much pain that we've caused in our lives that we can never possibly atone for all of it. This doesn't let you off the hook of working to undo the disruption you've caused, but ultimately we appeal to Jesus. Jesus. Jesus died on the cross to atone us, to heal our disruptions so we can be forgiven. But there's another side to it as well. It's not just so that we can be forgiven, because Paul takes a different look at the purpose of the crucifixion in Ephesians. He says, Jesus himself is our peace, who made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. Notice where Paul's focus is in Ephesians 2. He's saying that the death of Jesus tears down the hostility between people. It deals with the ways we've hurt each other. It makes it possible to undo the disruption I've caused in my family in my workplace. Because notice the, the, the order of things that God, Jesus reconciles us into one people and reconciles that one people to God. We talk a lot about having a personal relationship with Jesus, and that's important. But when we get to heaven, we are getting in by a group rate. You get in by being reconciled. There, there are no individual coupons, right? It's we get in as a group. And we're reconciled to each other. And that means that Jesus died on the cross so that we can be forgiven 
and we can forgive. And this is the resource that we have that allows us as followers of Christ a unique ability to foster atonement in our communities. Because we can say, look, there is one who has paid the price. There is one who has faced the full power of sin, has faced the full power of the disruption that sin causes. And because he took it on himself, we can forgive each other. I can forgive the person who hasn't actually satisfied my need for uh, uh, revenge or whatever it is, because I can say, look, Jesus paid for both of us. Jesus said it right, because it needs to be set right. But only Jesus can do that for us. And when we recognize the importance of atonement, of repairing relationships, we can recognize the role that that plays in our mission as Christians. Jesus said this to his followers. He said, therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. This is one of those frustrating places where Jesus says things, he doesn't say it the way I wanted him to say it. Right? Because I wanted him to say, if you realize that you have, you realize, you admit that you have wronged your neighbor, you have wronged this person, like you, you, you accept that there's a problem. But he doesn't say that. He says, if you know of someone who has something against you, the emphasis isn't on who's to blame. The emphasis on, is on whether the relationship is broken. And Jesus says, if you want to follow me, then don't come to me with broken relationships all around you and having done nothing to address them. I didn't save you so you could just worship me uh, you know, on Sundays and then disrupt relationships the rest of the week. I saved you so that you could actually bring people together. Bless your neighbors. So following Jesus means facing our sins and mistakes and seeking at one minute with our neighbors. We're going to follow Jesus. That means actually having relationships with the people we can't run away from. Being willing to have those relationships and take the risk that you're probably going to make a mistake. You may even have to admit it. You may even have to ask for forgiveness. We don't like that. We want to run away from it. Since the very first sin, we have been trying to run away from our mistakes. But as Christians following Jesus, we need to follow his example, to face our mistakes, to face the disruption in our world, and to resolve it in the power of Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Father, as we think about all the ways that we human beings mess up our world and mess up our relationships, it is... um, it is truly dizzying the, our creativity and the many ways that we can disrupt this world. And Father, we are so humbled and grateful to know that you did not just sit back, blame us, and wait for us to make it right. You care more about restoring your good design, your good creation, than you do about casting blame. And so you sent your son to us. You sought us out to restore your relationship with us, Father, we are so grateful. Father, we ask that you would change our hearts so that we have the same heart that you do. 
Hearts that desire not to cast blame, not to sort out who's right and who's wrong, but hearts that want to seek atonement. That want to seek being at one with you and with the people you love. Father, we are challenged by recognizing that you love more people than we do. And as we are called to love the people you love, that means we are called to love everyone. We ask that you would give us your spirit, your desire, your love for all people to overcome our own barriers, our own selfishness. Father, we pray that you would make us to be more like your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. At Turner Christian Church, we believe that a fully functioning disciple of Jesus Christ is someone who connects with God and his church, grows in faith and love, and serves their community and world. And and we also believe that every time the gospel is preached, the Spirit gives us an opportunity to take a step in his direction. And so as we prepare to sing our final song, I'd ask you to consider what step is God laying on your heart? What is the next step in your walk as a disciple of Jesus? As you're looking to connect, grow, and serve, there are a couple of opportunities we can highlight here at the church. 